chapter 4, and we begin now in verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Wherefore, putting away. Last week we started the message called a total makeover, looking at this new man created after God in righteousness and true holiness. We looked at the old-fashioned way, the wardrobe we all used to wear. And then we looked at the new you and how the new man has been created. And now we look at the new wardrobe. Now, if Paul was speaking in indicatives or statements of fact in verses 22 through 24, you have put off the old man, you have been renewed, you have the new man. Now, very clearly, he is speaking with imperatives. From verse 25 to chapter 5, verse 2, there are imperatives, which is telling us commandments, but also telling us what we need to be doing and what we need to stop doing. Thirteen imperatives, and we'll look at just a few of them today. We'll focus our attention on those passages which speak about our words. If we're to speak the truth in love, and we're to grow up into Christ, growing into a unity that's been established by the Holy Spirit unto a perfect man that keeps us stable so that we're not drawn away from every wind of doctrine. And then the body, the imagery of a body Paul uses is, is it's fitly joined together, it's compacted. Every ligament, every joint is supplying something according to the gift of the grace of God that's been given every member of the body. The body increases and edifies itself in love. So now that imagery of a body in verse 16 should be placed as a grid right over top of verses 25 through the end of the chapter. Because that edification now, which means growth in holiness, is going to start working itself out in verse 25. Wherefore, putting off. So we should see a pattern developing in these verses. You'll see the negative put something off. You'll see the positive put something on then you'll see a motivation, a reason why we should act this way, why should we should do this. So look at uh, verse 25, and this first article of clothing, we'll call it, in the wardrobe of the new man is speak truth, speak honestly one to another. Now look at the negative. Hey, lying. Here's the positive. Speak truth every man with his neighbor. Here's the reason, the motivation. Because we are members one of another. Sudas is the word. Lying, it just means falsehood. Paul certainly could be speaking of lying in any context, but the context is relationships, the body, here, among ourselves. We are to put away lying relationally, which then would include what? Marriage and family. Because we are members one of another. Certainly we should not lie in any context, but Paul is addressing the new man. The perfect man that's growing to maturity. How can we possibly grow up into Christ in all things when we're lying to one another? Falsehood. Now the word lying can mean trimming or shading the truth. Shade the truth. Now, why would we do that? Well, because of the deceitful desires of the old man. The old man wants to look good. Uh, 
The old man doesn't want to be embarrassed. The old man doesn't want to look like a failure. So what do we do? We shade the truth in our relationships. We, we trim it. We recast it. So that we look a little better than we really are. Falsehood here means we're saying less than what needs to be said. Are you ever guilty of that? You don't outright lie, as we might say, but you, you, you trim it and shade it in such a way because the old man, his expectation is to find fulfillment in the relationship and he just can't tell the truth. It won't serve his purposes. Therefore, he trims, he shades, he massages, he manipulates, he uses his words for selfish ends. Now, the idiom, shade the truth, means, if you look it up, to put someone off your scent. Like the fox and the hound, right? A fox, they, they communicate through scent. Now the bad thing is the hound can pick it up really easy. So the fox has to outsmart the hound, and he runs in circles, crisscrosses in pattern to throw off the scent, and then he goes through a stream. What's he doing? He's seeking to preserve himself. Now that's okay for a fox in preserving his life, but the point here of the illustration is the old man seeks to hang on to those deceitful desires that he thinks, he's duped, he's deceived into thinking that the relationship is going to give him what it cannot give him. And therefore, like the fox, he puts the relationship off his scent. Off his scent. Now, how would he do that? Well, when you need to confess fully what you did, you shade the truth and you trim it. And then like a fox, you turn the circumstances all around so that the person you're confessing to looks far worse than you do. And in fact, it's really their fault, said, and done. What just happened? You lied. You trimmed and shaded the truth in a relationship. Or maybe you want the advantage of the relationship. And so you cast the truth in a way that is not what it should be, in fact, it's not altogether true, and you gain the advantage. Or you don't want to look like a failure. And so rather than saying what needs to be said, you shade the truth and you come out looking better through excuse-making rather than truth-telling. Or perhaps you need to say something true in the relationship, but the old man doesn't want, he doesn't like, he doesn't desire the tension, the trouble. The awkwardness of saying the truth. So he flowers it a bit or just ignores telling the truth altogether. God says we need to stop shading truth in our relationships. And we need to speak truth. Why? We are members one of another. Now why does Paul say that? Well... Verse 16, we're all members of this body that's to be edifying itself in love. What happens to love when we lie to the members of the body? Two things, two observations. One is we damage ourselves when we lie to the body, don't we? Imagine using Paul's illustration of a body where the feet are walking towards a cliff and the eyes see it, of course, and they say, I, I'm just uncomfortable. What is it my business to tell the person? 
that if he keeps walking down this pathway, he's going to go headlong off of a cliff. I mean, that's really none of my business. He wouldn't receive it. He'll probably get mad. She'll get upset with me. So, I just won't say anything. Now, what happens when the feet go off the cliff? The eyes follow with it, doesn't it? Lying to the body is, in a sense, lying to yourself. Even in marriage. When we shade the truth to one another in marriage which is a one-flesh relationship, what are you doing to your own flesh? You're destroying your own flesh. You're working against your own joy in Christ by lying, making excuses, turning the table, shading the truth, trimming it, so when it's all said that it's her fault or it's his fault, rather than being honest in confession, being honest when we speak to one another. Furthermore, how can the purpose of chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 ever take place through lying? How does the body grow up into Christ when the body is shading the truth with one another? What happens is we kind of grow out of Christ, don't we? Lying has no place in the body of Christ. So what do we do with lying? We confess it, we repent, and we ask God to help us put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We make a commitment to stop shading the truth, and we speak the truth. Now, somebody here is probably thinking, lying's not my problem. I have no problem with telling people the truth. Well, that could be your problem. Do you tear them down when you tell them the truth? Are you speaking the truth in love? If there's no love there, then you're still serving the purpose of the old man and yourself as advantage by telling truth to the person just to put them in their place. So when we speak honestly with one another, it must be with gentleness, meekness, and with a new man disposition. So we need to put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, put on the new man, new man and stop lying to one another. That's going to mean that we need to repent when we shade the truth. That's a tricky thing, isn't it? It's not like I just outright lied. I just protected myself like the fox, and I so confused and shaded things that the relationship never grew. The body can't grow without truth. So article number one, we speak the truth in love. Look at article number 2, beginning in verse 26. Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. The pattern is not so apparent here, but put off sinful anger, put on self-control and reconciliation, right? If you don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, then you need to be reconciled. And if you're not going to speak in a sinful way, you've got to have self-control. So that's what we're putting on, self-control and reconciliation. Why? Because we don't want to give place to the devil. Where place means a room or an opportunity. We don't want to give him an opportunity. All right, there are two kinds of anger or two words that Paul uses for anger in this chapter. One is translated wrath. One is translated anger. You particularly see those two different words in verse 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger. Wrath is... Thumos, in verse 32. I would describe it like that volcano you built as a science project in the sixth grade. You remember? 
You had that one liter bottle that was covered up with all this paper and paint that looked like a volcano. You put a vinegar solution inside and dumped the baking soda. What happens? Thumas' anger is explosive, and then it's over. But not orge anger. That's the second word. Orge is a slow, developing, abiding anger. It's like your iron. You, know, you plug in the iron, you turn it on, and there's no visible change. It slowly, gradually heats up and gets hot. Now, it doesn't look any different than when it was cold or when it's hot. The only way you know is to touch it. Orge anger is the kind of anger that is very silent, under control. Orge anger is a silent killer because it punishes everybody in its wake. In fact, it may be the more dangerous kind of anger because Thumas anger, everybody can see that. I mean, the person has to confess, I blew up. But orge anger is under the surface and it's so deceptive. You can convince yourself you're not angry at all, but all the while you're punishing everybody in the relationship you have. You won't speak to them. You manipulate such a way that you're really meeting out punishment. You're getting them back for what they did to you in ways that are not visible, right? So those are the two kinds of anger. Here are four commitments we need to have in this text. Number one, be committed to self-control. That's the clothing we're looking at. How would you do that? Well, self-control is not something we do on our own. It's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, temperance, meekness, faith. Temperance is self-control. So what that means is you can't just tie self-control up on the branch. Say, I've got my words of self-control, I'm ready. But the fruit begins to rot. See, the fruit is attached to the branch, which is attached to the trunk, which comes from a root system called Christ. See, if we just try to be self-controlled, a natural man can be self-controlled. A natural man may have a temperament that he doesn't get angry very often. But all he's doing is tying up rotten fruit on the branches that have no relationship to Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is different from walking in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit bears the fruit of the Spirit. So when we're walking in the Spirit and relating to Christ, the fruit of self-control begins to grow on the tree, for which we must be committed to that fruit of self-control. But in Galatians 5, the key is given where Paul says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust. That verse used to discourage me so deeply. Because I could so easily find my words in the works of the flesh. Variance, emulation, wrath. I I still can find myself there, right? And then I would get to that verse and say, Those that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with the passions. And I would conclude, therefore, I must not belong to Christ. Until I saw that as an encouraging, hope-filled verse. What is Paul saying? They that belong to Christ, that that phrase means kinship, fellowship, connection. We are connected to Christ by faith. We've been crucified with Him, Paul would say. Nevertheless, He lives. The life that He now lives is by faith. That's our kinship. That's our fellowship with Christ. And what Paul is saying, Christ has dealt a blow 
to the old man passions and the old man lust. And he's come to take residence in your heart. You have come into touch with a living, personal man. And his name is Jesus Christ. We don't have fellowship with the Bible. Right? The Bible is the means to have fellowship with a person, a living, breathing person that's come to dwell in you and to empower you. You need to think this way. You need to reckon it so, Paul would say. You need to live in the reality that Christ has crucified that old man so that he doesn't have to rule you anymore. He doesn't have to rule you. Anger does not have to rule you any longer. Rule you. Why? You belong to Jesus. You belong to Him. And He wants you to know decisively that you belong to Him. He wants you to live in the, the might of the Spirit and the inward man. He wants you to know He loves you. He died for you. He's with you. He wants you to experience Ephesians 3 where it says, You're strengthened with all might in the inner man by His Spirit. That Christ, that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. So we bring our faith to the Word of God, looking for Jesus, and we ask Him, Lord, help me to be self-controlled. Be with me, abide with me as I abide in the Word. And what will happen? The Spirit will come, beloved. And He will help you make progress with words of anger. Make progress. This is progressive, isn't it? To make progress with words of anger. This verse, you can control the anger by the Spirit. Or why would Paul say, be angry and don't sin? If that were not possible, we could just rip that verse right out of the Bible. No, the implication is through Christ and through the Spirit, you have what is necessary to make progress in self-control. Because you belong to Christ and you have the power of His Holy Spirit. Next, be committed to speaking slowly. Now this is for the blow-up people. We'll get to the the clam up people in a minute. Blow up people, you tend to blow up with the words, right? Now you should probably analyze whether you're a blow up or clam up person. That may be helpful. You know, if you tend to volcano or like, what do you, drop the Mentos in a liter soda and shake it up and be committed to do what James says in James 1.19. Wherefore, my beloved, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not work God's righteousness. Now, the new man created in righteousness and true holiness wants to work it. So we need to know my wrath, your wrath, will not produce anything right. It produces destruction. So be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. See, if, we're, if you're the blow-up kind, you're usually pretty quick to speak, pretty quick to get angry. Even do what Proverbs 30, 32 tells us, that if you thought evil in your heart, put your hand over your mouth. I think that verse tells us very literally, sometimes you just put the hand right over the mouth, and the words can't get out, right? If that's what it takes to keep from sinning with our lips, then right in front of the person, when you're about to say something, when you, when you thought evil in your heart, and it's about to come out, put it right over your mouth. And that person will know, if they were in this congregation, oh, he's applying Proverbs 30, 32. Right? So, be committed to 
speaking slow. Now remember, the Spirit gives you that power. That's the power of self-control, but it's a commitment to speak slowly. Number three, be committed to reconciliation. Now, this is for the clam-up person. Because clam-up people will go to bed seething. You might not even know they are. The blow-up person, you knew it. But the clam-up person smiles. Then he starts punishing. If it's a husband and wife, you know, you'll, you'll move over to the edge of the bed and almost falling off because you, you don't want them to touch you. You're a clam-up person. See? Now, what's the danger? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, malice. It's all underneath the surface. And you can smile and be angry at the same time. See, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath means be reconciled. Blow-up people are usually quick to want to do that. because Everybody saw what I did. Clam-up people can go for days. And you never know they're angry. They're just punishing you. They're trying to get revenge. And they're not applying verse 32 with forgiveness. Now here's what you need to remember about reconciliation. The word reconciliation means to bring back again. The old man simply wants to bring the relationship back to him. Reconciliation brings the relationship back to Just to get back to normal. The old man will say anything to him. Just to get things back to his old deceitful desires. To be reconciled is to bring back to God. Not to you. And when that happens, what's the result? We bring back to one another. Right? We're bringing Christ to the relationship. And so what we want is to bring each other back to Christ in reconciliation, back to Christ in forgiveness, back to Christ. And then what happens? We're back to one another, whether it's in this body or in family or in marriage. Be committed to reconcile. Now, when you make that commitment, you may not always feel good about it. And there may be times when you need to put off the conversation to prevent sinful anger exploding out of your mouth but be committed to come back and reconcile just as quick as possible to prevent the bitterness and the resentment that often enters into the heart of an orge kind of angry person. Reconcile. And then be committed, and here's the motivation, be committed to, to keeping the devil out of place. The word place in verse 27 means a room or opportunity. A room or opportunity. Now, why did Paul annex this verse here? He could have done it with lying. He could have done it with stealing. He could have done it with verse 29 or anywhere in the process or any one of these articles of clothing. But he does it here. And I think the reason is is because the devil is a destroyer. And anger is a destroyer, isn't it? John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he abode not in the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is the father of lies. Well, well, there's lying and murder. Jesus equates murder with anger in Matthew chapter 5. He doesn't say they're the same. They're not. 
But he says, whoever commits murder, you've heard it was said of them all the time, they're in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. What's he saying? Anger is murdering one another without a weapon. The devil is a divider. He's a deceiver. He's a destroyer. And what is anger doing to your relationship? It's destroying it. The devil has taken control of a room in your house. Is it the bedroom? Is it the kitchen? Is it the family room? Is it the dining room? Or is it the whole house? We are giving opportunity to the devil in our relationships through anger because anger very clearly destroys people. Have you ever seen a situation where angry words actually edified anybody? Now, the displeasure of anger, when it's God-honoring, can help someone when we speak truth in a loving way. But have you ever heard angry words that when it was over, you say, well, I, I think I helped that person out. No, it's destructive. The old man uses angry words for selfish reasons. He wants to destroy. He wants to get people in check. He wants to fix them and get them where they need to be because he wants to use them relationally. For his deceitful lust. So when's the last time when you were angry, it had anything to do with God? When you're angry with the government, when you get really displeased, is it because they're breaking God's law? Or is it because the price at the gas pump affects your budget? That's old man. That's all about you. And that's all about me. That's got nothing to do with the glory of God. And the old man is all about himself, isn't it? And he still clings to us like a dirty garment. Put him away. Not just one time. Every day. Put the old man away. Put away lying. Put away sinful anger. Be reconciled. Be committed to speaking slowly And be committed to not giving the devil a room at your house to live. Right? Number three. We're going to look at verse 29. We're dealing with the ones that primarily speak of communication in the body. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good... To the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now notice the pattern. Negative put off corrupt communication. What do we put on? That which is good to the use of edifying, so that you may minister grace. What's the motivation? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a personal force. He's a person in the masculine gender. He's a person. Don't grieve the person of the Holy Spirit that resides in you. Okay, first, put away corrupt words. What are corrupt words? Surely that would include four-letter words, wouldn't it? There is a growing sentiment among Christians that four-letter words are okay. You hear it everywhere. As if it's just another language by which to communicate with one another. 
And somebody said, well, it, it's everywhere. I certainly agree with that. Politicians. You know, when they, when they put their words from a Twitter on the news, they, they hyphen them. Put the first letter and hyphen the rest. Or they're bleeped, right? Now, that's one indication when a society as corrupt as ours still bleeps words for non-pay-per-view television. The Christian has no business speaking that way. Well, Paul addresses that in chapter 5, in verse 3, where he says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints. It's not befitting a saint. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Now, these three words regarding speech have sexual connotations, but filthiness is obscene language. It's very clear. God forbids obscene language because we need to use God's standard and not the standards of men. I don't care if the whole planet does it. God goes on record, if you belong to me, you cannot represent me with obscene language. And that's what we do as Christians. We represent Jesus Christ. Not convenient means not fitting, not appropriate. Discreditable. Do you know who you discredit with four-letter words? You discredit Jesus to discredit means you, you call someone not to believe or not to think of someone a certain way. We are discrediting the name of Jesus with our words as we wear the jersey called Christian on the back of that jersey. If you have ever had to be around a person at work that constantly uses four-letter words, two things about that person. Verse 4, they are not content, rather giving of thanks. Rather than obscenity, give thanks. That person's not content. They're empty. They are empty. Number two, they're angry. Mark it down. If you've ever had to spend time around a person that uses filthy language, mark it down. They're an angry person, nine out of ten times. Because they're empty. There's no contentment. As a Christian, you know where contentment is found. So you've got to make a commitment. If you've been accustomed to speaking that way, it's not going to happen overnight. You go back and be renewed. You ask God to give you grace to help you put away four-letter words. Now, somebody here is thinking, I'm really glad he said that. You know, I think that needs to be said. Do you know that Paul is not addressing four-letter words here? I just threw that in because I think it needs to be said because of the culture we live in. When he says filthy communication, he's not thinking of four-letter words. He's thinking about your speech. Filthy communication is putrid, rotten, useless. Useless communication. You can speak good words and be totally useless in your communication. So let's see what Paul is talking about relationally when he says... To put away worthless, useless communication. I want to start by an illustration. There are two types of communication that we can do. Now this is just illustration. I'm, I'm not saying these are in the Bible in terms of the illustration. You can be a conduit or you can be a cul-de-sac. A conduit is like an aqueduct. It channels something from one point to another, right? An aqueduct. 
That's like water that's flowing from one point to another. When our communication is useful, we are like conduits of grace because we're ministering grace to one another. Or your communication can be like a cul-de-sac. What is that? Well, you know, a cul-de-sac is a street or a passage that's closed at one end. And that's okay if you live in a cul-de-sac, but not for your communication. You ever been in a neighborhood and you're trying to get out of the neighborhood? And you, you, you find that cul-de-sac. And the street is just in the backyard of where you want to be. And you think, I, I could just go right through that yard, I'd be where I want to be. You have to turn around and leave the cul-de-sac. The old man, with his deceitful desires, uses cul-de-sac communication. And that's this. He wants all the traffic in the neighborhood to terminate on him. It's a dead end. He wants all the traffic in the relationship to come right down the cul-de-sac where his house sits, and it terminates at his house. Do you know why? Because of deceitful desires. So whatever this man says, this man or this woman can actually use the Bible and it be corrupt communication. I bet somebody in this room's done that. I bet I have. It's where you take the truth of the Bible and you use it in such a way to get the traffic in the relationship to come right to your doorstep. Just like the devil did with Jesus, right? He quotes the Bible exactly as it was written. He doesn't add a verse. He doesn't take away a verse. He doesn't twist it. He doesn't massage it. But what's he after? He wants Christ to terminate on his desires and give him what he wants. He's using the Bible for self-serving purposes. That is probably worse than four-letter words. Because I know what a four-letter word is. I can tell you that's not right. But do I know when I'm taking the Bible and using it like a cul-de-sac to get my wife, my family, and everybody in my relationship all traffic to terminate on my desires? That's dreadful, isn't it? But there's hope for us. There's hope in this verse. So, put away, let not corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Those me-centered, me-focused words. Rather what? Speak that which is good. So here are some things we need to be committed to. If we're going to make progress and not using our speech, even when it's good words, well, there were no curse words in what I said, right, but you used to use it as a cul-de-sac. You just used it to funnel everything back to you. How can we make progress? Be committed to speak what is good for the use of edifying. Use here is translated necessity or the need of edifying. All right? So conduit is going to go out toward the other person for agathos reasons. The word good is agathos, which means excellent or useful. It's just the opposite of corrupt. Useless, worthless, now useful, worthwhile communication. Because the communication now is going out in love for the need of the moment, which is edifying. So, 
To speak useful words, we have to remember two things. First of all, you've been called to this work. It's God's call in your life. You've been called to walk worthy of the vocation. Ephesians 4.1 This calling means God owns your words. He's bought you and you're His representative. And He wants you to be a conduit of His grace by speaking that which is good as a minister of grace. Now, that's not a noun, like I'm in this official capacity. It's a verb. You're, you're serving grace to one another. So if the pastor teacher is equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for edification, and if the whole body is edifying itself in love, then you're ministering grace for the fulfillment of the imagery in verses 12 through 16. You're a minister of grace. Your words are not cul-de-sac anymore. You're fighting against that, and now they're conduits. You're an aqueduct of fresh-flowing water. Of grace to one another. I need some work. <laughs> I just confessed to you right now. I need, I need some Holy Spirit work. Do you? Listen to the speech in your family. Listen to the words in your home. I, that'll be very painful. It's like my father-in-law said to me. I still find it painful. Still struggle with it. He said, listen to your sermons. <laughs> Why? Well, if, if the people have to listen to them, you need to know that's hard. Listen to the tone and the speech of the voices in your family. Not to get angry, but to get help. See? This is all designed by Paul and God to help us. Because God knows the old man still clinging like a dirty garment. He knows that. And he's ready to help us. Is he not? So recognize God's call. You are now a conduit of grace as a believer and rest in God's plan, right? So if the peace of God is to rule in your heart, we need to understand God is ruling over the relationship. He owns the relationship. He owns my words. And He brought the pressure, the trial, the conflict into the relationship. Why? For edification. Growth in wisdom, piety, happiness, holiness. That's what edification means. So when I understand that, I'm bringing peace because I understand what just happened. The the fireworks all around me is by design of God to reveal in the relationship there's something not good here. God just showed me something in my child that's not good here. Not good. So I'm going to bring my peace because it's from God in one body, in the church, in the relationships. I'm going to be thankful that God has now showed us something we need to work on. And now I'm going to admonish. I'm going to minister. I'm going to teach what? Grace. We're going to minister grace. So we're committed to speak what is good. And we're committed to speak in the need of the moment. What's the need? Well, I don't know. That requires some thought, doesn't it? Say, who am I speaking to? Speaking to my wife or my children? That's a huge difference, isn't it? Am I speaking to an old Christian or a younger Christian? Older meaning longer time as a Christian. Is this person afraid, anxious, doubting their salvation? Are they bitter, resentful, angry, wrathful, gossiping, slandering? Are they rebellious, proud? It's all kinds of needs to speak to, right? 
What is the need? If we are to speak that which is useful to the use or to the need of edification, then what is the need? What is the need? What do I need to hear from you? That requires prayer. That requires discernment. That requires relying on the Holy Spirit of God. So the question is, does this person need a lecture? Has a lecture ever done you much good? Right? You know, when you lecture your children, now don't raise any hands if you've done that. Lecture your children. If you could look into their brains, you'd probably hear them saying, I just wish he would stop. I just wish he'd get it over. This has been a 40-minute lecture. I just wish I could move on with life. Because we didn't think about the need of building up or edifying. So if the aim is to help others in ministering grace to the hearers, then they need to hear from God and not from us. They need to hear in such a way we would hope that they see something about themselves accurately that often a lecture won't do, right? So how do we get there? Well, I think James is a, is a good case study on how to get there. James tells us, and I think he's dealing with this whole man throughout the letter. He says, if you be hearers of the word and not doers of the word, you're deceiving your own selves. That's self-deception. For he that is a hearer of the word and not a doer is likened to a natural man beholding his face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, he goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So the mirror of God's word is preached and he hears it. But because of self-deception, the mirror doesn't expose anything about the man. Why? Because he, he doesn't see himself accurately. He looks in the mirror, like a natural mirror, and he thinks everything's okay, everything looks good, and he goes straightway. Now we know from what James is saying, everything is not good. This man needs to see in the mirror of God's Word in such a way that he has an accurate assessment of himself because the Word of God exposes the heart, right? If he just has fruit tied up on the branches, he looks pretty good. The reason the Word of God is not exposing his heart is not because of the Word of God, it's because of self-deception. The old man is deceiving him with deceitful lust, and he approaches the law because he's a Jewish Christian and thinks, I'm right with God, I'm okay. So what does James do? He uses the rest of the book to address the double-minded man that's deceiving himself. And what does he do? He points out some things, but he asks a series of questions designed for the man to look within his own soul and the mirror of God expose what's going on in the heart, right? Chapter 2, you find questions. Chapter 3, you find questions. Chapter 4, you find that, that question. Why are you warring, blowing up, clamming, and fighting, and spewing out these words? He wants that man to look in the heart and the Word of God expose the reason why he's doing that. And the reason's lust. We know that from verse 23, don't we? The deceitful lust. Should we not ask questions of one another and questions of our children and questions in our relationship that's designed to expose to their own why they did what they did? I've tried the other countless times. Just point it out, lecture, point it out. 
Well, the man in James 1 is having it pointed out. The mirror's coming. But he doesn't see himself accurately. He has a distorted view of himself. So James just pummels him with questions. Why is this happening? Where is this coming from? Now, I want you to see James is ministering grace to this man. Because in James chapter 4, what does he do? He gives more grace. This is where James has taken the man the whole time. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So, humble yourselves. What does he say? Draw near to God. Isn't that the aim of grace? All grace in the Bible. The grace of salvation. The grace of reconciliation. The grace of redemption, rescue, deliverance, help, strength, confidence. Is aimed not to bring people to us. To bring them to God. So James is unpacking his argument for this man that just hears, but he can't see himself accurately. And then he mentions grace. He says, draw nigh to God. He says, cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is seeking to expose the man's heart to himself. And then what happens? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Isn't that wonderful? See, we are ministers of grace. And as ministers of grace, serve that grace of help and, and, and confidence, encouragement, support, and conviction, and confrontation, all that we do, in such a way that those that hear are not hearing us, but what's being exposed is why I did that. What was I thinking? Why I said that? And in doing so, we're building up the body. The body is growing in holiness. The body is growing up into Christ as we speak truth and every joint is supplying. The body is growing up through faith, repentance, conviction, encouragement, and all the ways that grace supplies all that we need in Jesus Christ. That's what God is calling us to be and to do with these verses. It requires truth. It requires Speaking that which is good, it requires putting off the old man with his deceitful desires and putting on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him it created. What is the motivation here? Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, we find those words in verse uh, 13, 14 of chapter 1. Where Paul says, you believed after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, which you were also sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You've been sealed. Let me read it. In whom you also trusted, verse 13 of chapter 1, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. All right, two things this verse is telling us. One is possession, right? We've been purchased by God. So the Holy Spirit communicates to us possession, but also assurance until the redemption of the purchased possession. You're assured that God is going to hold on to you. You're assured that He's going to keep you by faith unto salvation. You have the deep assurance as you walk with Him that He's not going to let you go. 
So from the time of believing the gospel and you were sealed to the time of the inheritance, the redemption of the purchased possession future, what's the Holy Spirit doing from then till then? He's making you holy. He's working all things out together for good to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. How then do we grieve the Holy Spirit in the work of sanctification? We use our words to hinder His work. We use our words in exactly the opposite way of promoting holiness and edification. We work against it. So God is saying, don't get in the way of the Holy Spirit with your words. Get out of His way. How? Be a conduit. He's going to use you as a minister of grace to speak words of edification, which are words of conviction, words of confrontation, words that need to be said to me and to you. But they're words that promote the good of the person. The old man will only speak words for the good of himself. He gets in the way of sanctification because he's working against the very thing the Holy Spirit is doing which is the holy happiness of everyone in the relationship. The old man is just after his own happiness. He'll never get there. Lust can never be satisfied. Just look at our world. That's why Paul said, who being past feeling have given themselves over. Now if they were content and satisfied, why do they go deeper and deeper? Because you can never satisfy a lust. But the old man, or new man rather, can be satisfied because the new man has Christ and he will one day be forever satisfied. Beloved, let us stop getting in the way of the Holy Spirit with our words and working against what he's doing and causing him grief. The Holy Spirit's a person. He can be grieved. That's our motivation. Rather, put on the new man and speak Words of grace, words that build up, words that minister one to another. And finally, the last article of clothing, speak words of forgiveness. And this is in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now there's the put off of the old man. That, that's what the old man, that's what he deals with. Why is the old man so bitter? Because you won't give him what he wants in the relationship. He's furious. He'll punish you. He'll blow up. He is an angry person because he's not content. He can't be. Old man desires can never be fulfilled. So he lives. You ever met a person like this? Living with bitterness, wrath, anger. Paul says, keep putting those old garments away. Those are old man garments. And what do we put on? Kindness, one to another. Tenderheartedness. Participle means this is what the outflow of that is. Forgiving one another. So there's the put on. What's the motivation? God has forgiven you. Is there any greater motivation? Even as God for Christ, they had forgiven you. So, a couple things here. There are two ways we need to forgive. One is a, a preparation kind of forgiveness, and the other is, is personal. 
I'll call the first one preemptive forgiveness. Preemptive means to stall or prevent. This kind of forgiveness is stalling and preventing what? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. All malice means that's kind of the root for which all those emotions come from, malice. The word forgiven in other contexts means to send it away. So the first kind of forgiveness is we make a commitment to send the offense away. Or what happens? Bitterness creeps into the soil of your heart and that root gets deeper and deeper. See, The person hasn't asked for it yet, but you're, you're prepared now. You just send it away. You haven't spoken words of forgiveness yet. You can't because they haven't asked. But first you send it away like Christ did in 1 Peter chapter 2. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he was threatened, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Preemptive forgiveness says God will judge. He'll bring conviction to that person or he'll bring punishment to that person. I'm resting in God. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't have to take action. He didn't have to take revenge. He didn't have to do anything. He just got crucified for you. He committed it to God. So I know my Father's going to judge this right. For many, He's going to bring to conviction what they did to me. And for many, it's going to be punitive. So preemptive forgiveness first just sends it away, the injury, and in the heart, now you're prepared for personal forgiveness. Personal just means relationship forgiveness. You're prepared because you can't speak words of forgiveness that haven't been asked yet. I had a person call me one time on the phone, just says, Brother, I want you to know I forgive you. Never told me why, what I did wrong. We never were reconciled. I can't ask for forgiveness for something I, I don't know I did. He, but it, that person didn't communicate what the problem was. Okay. So personal forgiveness happens when somebody says, Will you forgive me? And we should not say, It's okay. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit has just communicated to that person, This is not okay. This is not okay. And so you're going to tell him it's okay. No. Forgive him. And forgive her. And that sends it away. Amen. Saying it's okay is, is not doing anything. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. And I go on record. I'm not going to bring it up again. And if I do, you can confront me. Because that's what forgiveness means. It means I'm not going to keep telling you. As we often do. You remember the last time you did that? Wait, I thought you forgave me. No, you just kept records. You just put it away in your heart so you could use it for your own advantage. That's what the old man does. The old man is using relationships. He's using even reconciliation for his own advantage so he can keep a, a, a file cabinet full of offenses that he can keep bringing up. Why? Because he wants you to conform to his deceitful lust. So preemptive, personal from a kind and tender heart. See? Be kind, tender hearted, forgiving one another. Where does a kind and tender heart come from? This is something Colossians 3.12 says to put on. Tender heart is compassionate. Kindness is useful. It's, it's gentle. You see, what, what the old man is trying to do with bitterness is get revenge. 
you need to understand bitterness is a form of vengeance. So we're saying vengeance is mine. I will repay because I don't trust God to do the job accurately or rightly or in my timing. Bitterness is a form of revenge and you're trying to make the person pay for what they've done and your wrath and your anger is demanding payment. I will not be resolved in my bitterness to make payment for what you did to me. And clamor, I'm, I'm out crying about it. Slander, I'm going to talk about you. And malice, I just don't feel good about you. You are seeking payment and you've forgotten these words. God has forgiven you. And what payment did God make you and demand of you to be forgiven? Absolutely zero. Christ made the payment on your behalf. Christ absorbed the wrath of God. You're freely forgiven with no payment upon your repentance. God freely forgives you. Now, even as Christ has done that for you, Leave vengeance to God. It will be paid for in Christ or God will bring that person one day to conviction and extend that forgiveness to others. This is the power of the cross, isn't it? That's the hymn we sing. The power of the cross. And that's the song we're going to sing, Brother Wesley. The power of the cross. God's wrath absorbed. And on that basis, we now can put on the article of clothing by speaking words of forgiveness. How wonderful it is, how beautiful it is when someone has been hurt so bad, so terrible, injured so deeply. And they say, brother, sister, I I forgive you gladly. That's the power of the cross and of grace. And that power is not of us, is it? It's the power of the new man, the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and then we're going to sing that song. Father, we thank you for your words of